Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, director of content at Steinway & Sons, and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. If you enjoy Soundboard, please rate, review, and subscribe to it wherever you pod your casts. My guest today is Steinway artist Gerardo Tessonier, and he's here to talk about Beethoven, The Last Sonatas, his album for the Steinway & Sons label. While the luster of popular music fades with subsequent hearings, a masterwork only gains in brilliance, yet a masterwork achieves its greatness not through rote repetition, but because of a richness of craft and substance that permits it to be viewed from so many angles that a fresh interpretation is always within the realm of possibility. Following Beethoven's death, the Bach masterwork The Well-Tempered Clavier gained the moniker of the Old Testament of piano music, with Beethoven's 32 sonatas earning the name of the New Testament. If Bach's Old Testament is marked by balance, logic, discipline, Beethoven's New sees an engaging personal journey from pastiche to exploration to nothing less than capturing the universal. And that brings us, I believe, to your recent recording on the Steinway and Sons label of Beethoven's last three piano sonatas, opus 109, 110, 111. And if I'm not mistaken, this is your first recording. Is that correct? It is my first commercial recording. I have been recorded many times. Of course. (laughs) But it's interesting to me that you have chosen these sonatas as your first recording. And I think you probably felt like you were in the right place in life at the right time. I'm just guessing here. (laughs) But maybe you could tell me why you decided to choose Beethoven's last three sonatas for your first commercial recording. Indeed. First of all, I feel that your wonderful summary of the history and the situation where the Beethoven sonatas fit in the repertoire was very eloquent. The well-tempered clavier opened so many avenues for creativity in composers that came after it. And then came Beethoven, uh, who obviously has as his roots the music of Bach. And the 32 sonatas are a compendium of so many things that made them what they are. And the last three in particular present us with uncharted territory altogether, all as you know. Why did I choose Beethoven? The answer is very simple. Yes, age and maturity play a role in my decision, but also the fact that this music is in many ways very contemporary and that it resonates with the human condition in ways that I felt 
I needed to express. I, I think that's just the best way I can answer the question. This music is as contemporary today as it was when it was written because it comes from a human being, someone who overcame adversity through persistence and tenacity in order to leave something for humanity that would be of value and would offer solace and a sense of accomplishment for future generations. This music is, is an example, in my opinion, of the triumph of the human spirit over adversity. And as you know, we have not had a very good past almost three years, have we? No, certainly. In fact, we lost our Beethoven year, in a way. We did, and Beethoven has been part of my musical upbringing since I was a late teenager, when I first became acquainted with, with his music. I grew up with this music. I absorbed it. I did not play Opus 111 or Opus 109 until very recently, but I learned it via osmosis, you could say. Uh, my classmates would study it, and I absorbed the music, and it be just became second nature to me. So that does, that's the story of why I may have chosen this music, in part. Another reason is that it, this music sets an example for humanity of, of tenacity and perseverance in the face of adversity and an eventual triumph. It happens at the end of each of the three sonatas. There is even a sort of transfiguration at the end of Opus 111, where he goes even higher, even further. He reaches heaven and is able to conclude his testament, as it were, to the sonata form with a view towards all the possibilities in the future of composition with Liszt who took it even further, you see, and Cesar Frank in the violin and piano sonata, and eventually all, all subsequent composers, right? Sure. Let's talk about how you approached these three sonatas. You say that you were aware of them, in fact, learning them through osmosis. Were there Beethoven interpreters who came before you that had an influence on you? Oh, my goodness. I was so lucky as well in that regard. In Puerto Rico, we have been very lucky to have a world-class musical scene, thanks in large part to Pablo Casals. Yes, the Casals Festival is legendary there. Which he founded. Mm -hmm. Casals' mother was from Puerto Rico, and his wife, Martita, who is still with us, is also from Puerto Rico. And Casals chose the island as the place where he would leave his legacy and where he lived the last 30 years of his life. And he founded not only the festival, but the conservatory and the symphony orchestra and brought all his friends to play at his festival. Rubinstein, Schneider, Harau, De La Rocha, Henrik Schering, the violinist, 
Flybers, you name them, they came to the island. The Serkin family, okay. My, I watched Rudolf, uh, Peter Serkin, and Eugene Istomin play the Bach C major piano concerto in San Juan at the festival when I was a young teenager, conducted by Sasha Schneider, with an orchestra made up of young people from all over the world, joined by the first years of the world's greatest orchestras, and it was unbelievable. So I was very lucky to have witnessed many great pianists play this music. Claudio Rao is number one in my list because I saw him many times. What did you learn from Rao about interpreting Beethoven? <laughs> I learned that you, your body has to be one with the instrument. I, I was fortunate enough, my teacher would get me stage seats because the concert would be sold out. And several times that Arau came to the island to play, he always played either Opus 109 to begin the program or ended with Opus 111. Never heard him in Opus 110. And I was sitting four feet away from the man. And what I experienced watching him and listening to him was otherworldly. But, you know, later I read the Horowitz book on Arau and learned about his pedagogical ways and how he thought about the instrument and approaching the instrument. And then it was confirmed at that time that he used his energy that came from within, from his trunk, as it were, through his shoulders, through the elbow and wrist joint, into the fingers and onto the keyboard. And he used to say that if there were to be a barrier of put placed against this energy that comes from your trunk, uh, in the form of tension perhaps, in the wrist or any of these other joints, then that energy is lost and it does not move on to the keyboard. And then you're fighting the instrument instead of uh, commanding it. Exactly. Yeah. So this is how you become one with the instrument. The energy comes from your being. It comes from your brain, your heart, what you're listening to as you shape your performance. And it must be unleashed onto the keyboard with relaxation and flexibility. That is one thing that I learned from Arau about how to play the instrument, period. I admire him tremendously. I had a chance to speak with him several times, and the humility was incredible. A very humble man who was dedicated to music wholly, with, with no pretense. And I, I noticed the same qualities in Alicia de la Rocha, who I also had the fortune to, to meet and hear play very closely. I'm glad that you said that because I was thinking as you were saying it, I've spoken to a lot of people for this podcast and done a lot of interviews for Listen Magazine, which listeners can find at listenmusicculture.com. And I found that the most brilliant geniuses that I've talked to, whether it's Murray Pariah or Maurizio Pollini, or Bill Murray, or Billy Joel, they're always the most insecure. And I think it must have something to do with that inner critic <laughs> that they have 
where they, they know when something's not exactly as it should be, while others can hear that and be like, oh, this is amazing. That inner critic that has such a high, high standard is saying, ah, oh, yeah, but you could have done this, this, this. The true artist is always seeking the ideal performance. And that is that will never happen. Mm. We are fighting against time. We are fighting against acoustics. We are fighting against, God forbid, a terrible instrument. That's right. What you have in your head is never going to be right when the rubber meets the road, right. as we say. So we are always striving for the ideal, perfect performance, which will never exist. There will always be a crescendo <laughs> that we uh, would have liked to make a little bit more or a phrase slur that we would have wanted to come down more or the pedal or the instrument that we have is just does not agree with, with our music or what we want to accomplish. And I will tell you, I was so inspired by the Steinway I recorded this music on. That's very good to hear. Oh, my God. It, it is most incredible. When you feel that you have an instrument in front of you that can, where you can realize your dreams, what you have envisioned for your performance, then it's something else. That's where the magic really happens. Mm-hmm. That's also perhaps, and this is a topic that we have not yet perhaps dealt with, the topic of when and why now record commercially. And the answer to that would be simply that I was not in a hurry because I did not want to produce anything less than standing results. Is The piano has to be right. The acoustics have to be right. And hopefully, and in my case, I am feel very lucky, very blessed to have had a team of engineers and producers that anyone would want to work with in, in producing this recording. The instrument was just fabulous, and I felt I could accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish, everything that I intended to put down on record at the time. And I say at the time because the next day after we finished the sessions, I was already feeling that I was playing the music better. This music in particular lends itself to continued improvement. And uh, I I am the better for it. But I was very lucky. (laughs) I knocked us off track with my comments on Genius because you were about to tell me uh, what you learned from Alicia de la Rocha. Alicia. She was the ultimate servant to the score, the music. She was at the service of the music. You know, there are many pianists and instrumentalists who will say, I am not the servant of the music, I do what I want. I am old school, I'm afraid. I believe in doing what's written. Uh, I Obviously, it is a starting point, but she was dedicated to the composer. She was dedicated to presenting her conception of the music according to what the composer wrote and obviously had the equipment and the mind to achieve it and, and, and the ability to do it. You know that Harold Schoenberg, longtime Times critic, said when she made her debut in America, this woman must have a 
brain in each of her fingers. <laughs> I tell my students, your, your fingers are stupid. It is your brain. The music it doesn't work that way. You cannot make music with your fingers. You cannot make music with your hands. The music has to be made in your heart and in your brain. And then you tell your fingers what to do. Hmm. So, yes, she was a, a genius. She was absolutely incredible. Okay, so taking in mind Arouse's connection of, of the body to the instrument, Alicia's dedication to being a tool of the composer and the score, when you sat down at long last to record Opuses 109, 110, 111, what was your starting point? What did you bring to the keyboard? Well, I would have to say the first movement of Opus 109. I started from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you started from the beginning. Okay. But sitting down to play that, what were the musical priorities for you that you had going into this project? Good question. Thank you for the question. Yes. Beauty of sound. That is number one with me. I aim to always produce beautiful sounds at the piano. And I learned that a long time ago, uh, listening to Gilles, listening to these great pianists play live. I studied them and I tried to find common denominators. You know, I have a few tricks and tips that I gather, very observant uh, of, of their playing. But beautiful sound is very important to me because my teachers had beautiful sound and they always advocated for that. And that is one of the foundations of, of my teaching as well. So that is one, a complete understanding of the structures. I just arrived at the recording sessions already knowing where one phrase, oh my goodness, I went to Washington to, I had the manuscript, I lived through the manuscript of Opus 109 with my bare fingers. This is interesting because Beethoven, of course, is a notoriously messy writer of music, right? If Mozart, if all his manuscripts looked like they had been printed out in finale, Beethoven is the opposite. We see yes. him crossing things out, circling things, moving things around. He definitely only kept his best ideas, but there were hundreds of, of discarded ideas along the way. But I wonder, what did you encounter when looking at the manuscripts of the last three sonatas? Yes, a lot of confusion, but thank goodness we have good editions and good editors, good uh, researchers. I began my studies of this music with the Schnabel edition, and then I came to Cleveland and decided that I wanted to compare with a as close to the composer's own handwriting as possible, and I used uh, Urtex editions without editor, and through the years consulted many editions, facsimiles of manuscripts, and you know, ultimately, it is your artistic decision. We are always finding issues with manuscripts. I think the, the most important thing to keep in mind is that ultimately it is what you decide. You are the artist. You have studied the manuscripts, the facsimiles, and arrived at judicious conclusions as to how the music should go. 
And then you find yourself with an instrument, more often than not a foreign instrument to you, and you have to attempt to recreate your conception of the score. It will be your name on the album art. It will be your responsibility to do justice to the score. Any questions that may remain from scribbles and erasings and conflicts between publishing houses must be resolved ahead of time so that you feel convinced that what you're going to put out, as it were, is the right thing. You make your best attempt. I'm glad that you mentioned having a beautiful sound because on this recording that you did, for me, my highlight was the final movement of your Opus 109, where I think you definitely captured that beautiful sound in these, for lack of a better term, I'll I'll call it like a chorale section in that slow movement. It was truly beautiful. And I think our outro music for this podcast will definitely pull from some beautiful moments in that movement. Well, thank you. I'm grateful that that you were just saying that, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I, too, feel that Opus 109 is a jewel. I consider it a kaleidoscope of colors. The music is of kaleidoscopic nature. So many colors are possible with this music, and even the first movement, you can already have a tremendous opportunity for that. You know, he wrote the piece for the young daughter of his patrons, Maximiliana Brentano, a Viennese family who supported him, who were very good friends. And in fact, he intended all three sonatas to be published, dedicated to a member of the same family, which did not happen, by the way. He had some trouble in these last three, right? Yes, and conflicts with publishing houses. Professional obligations, uh, some illness. Right. He was also deaf at this point. Right, completely. He could not hear anything. He relied on his uh, gadget that you can see at Heiligenstadt, the famous acoustic shell. Anyway, uh, Opus 109, very special music. Mm -hmm. Colors beyond anyone's imagination, in my opinion. Gerardo, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Listeners can go hear your album on the Steinway & Sons label, Beethoven, The Last Sonatas. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure.
listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard a clip of Steinway artist Gerardo Tessonier performing the final movement of Beethoven's Sonata Opus 109 from his album Beethoven, The Last Sonatas, available now on the Steinway and Sons label. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Email me at info at steinway.com with the subject heading soundboard. Message me on Facebook at Steinway or hit me on the gram at Steinway and Sons. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.